Welcome to this edition of Uncomfortable Collisions with Reality. I like saying that. I'm here with a friend who you may have seen before, Dr. Martin Turkus, a philosopher and school teacher in California. And we're going to talk about a document that I produced about a year ago, I suppose, which is four principles that we fail to understand that are poorly represented in our world. And if they were better represented in our world, our world would be a whole lot better. I've been thinking about those things for a long time. And that was a, a boiling down of a bunch of things to these four single words. Two of them are in a foreign language, which you'll learn about. And Martin, I got talking to Martin about these things. And Martin has presented this one and a half page document on these four principles, these four words to his students and got their reaction as well. So I'm going to hand over to Martin and we'll see where we'll see where he takes us all. Yeah, G'day, Martin. <clears throat> Thanks for having me, Nicholas. Good to be here. So the students I was working with are, are seniors in the American high school system. So they're, you know, 17 going on 18. It's an honors class. So they're, they're, they're pretty, you know, pretty capable students. And so they found it interesting. They read the document for Neglected Principles for Flourishing. They came up with some some questions, which we whittled down. And they so came up with, they came up with six pages of questions. Yeah. And that was just, that was after I took the bad ones out okay. <laughs> or some of the bad ones out, you know, or the, or, or the less well put together all questions. Fine. They all look fine to me. Yeah. They all look fine to me, but there is a fair bit of overlap. So Lots we're, of overlap, we're, yeah. I'm leaving you to sort that out. Yeah, absolutely. I've been trying to do that. So, I mean, I was thinking first, since probably a lot of your viewers will not have yet read your document, though they they might be yeah. familiar with some of the stuff you've written in the past that overlaps, like the competition yeah. delusion and some of your, your posts on, is it Club Tropo? Yeah. Is that the name of the blog? At any rate, yeah. maybe you can sum up those four principles kind yeah, of well, succinctly and then I'll okay. hit the questions. Okay, that sounds good. So, well, maybe I think maybe we should spend two or three minutes, sort of at least two or three minutes, exploring each of these yeah, these absolutely. things because they sort of well, two of them are expressed in ancient Greek, so yeah. we certainly need a translation. Yeah, and uh, so the words are so the words are isegoria, and if you're wondering what that is, you're right. That's one of the Greek words. Mm -hmm. Parhesia, merit. Yeah, I'm sure you'll know what merit means, and fidelity. So those are the four things. Those are the four things that seem to me to be sadly misunderstood and lacking in our world. So isegoria, it is the ancient Greek word sometimes occasionally translated as freedom of speech, but it really means equality of speech. And the ancient Athenian democracy was based on equality of speech. This other word we'll move on to, which is parhesia, which is not quite freedom of speech, but something close to freedom of speech and the equality of people under the law, that everyone is equal under the law. A strange, well, citizens are equal under the law, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there's lots more to be said about that, mm -hmm. but I haven't, I haven't mentioned that. So I've made a thing of this, and I suspect I've made more of it than the ancient Athenians made of it, because it seems to me that in our system, we have a system both, well, not just in our politics, but think of a factory. One of the things that Toyota managed to do, and it quadrupled the labor productivity compared with its competitors. And that was to understand that 
a factory will work much better with equality of speech. And where would the inequality of speech be? Well, there's no problem with designers and engineers and marketers and finance people getting their say. It's the people on the assembly line that kind of do what they're told. And yet what we need them to be doing is to be strategizing their own jobs, to be able to say, oh, hang on, if we move this thing over there, we'll be able to do that better. And then this other team will be able to get the get the car to us in a, you know, warmer from the paint shop or whatever it is. That Just that idea of honouring everyone, but particularly paying attention to people supposedly at the bottom of these hierarchies, makes a massive difference simply to social functioning and economic functioning. And in our politics, the lack of a segaria, I think, is tearing the world apart. And so while people witter on about diversity, the there is a crisis of the diversity of people and their levels of education in all the systems that run us. So in communities in the rich West, your country and my country, the number of university graduates, the number of adults with university education and adults without university education is about 50-50. The number of people in our broadcasters, among our politicians, the people running everything, they outnumber them 20 to 1, graduates and people with a large amount of education. And I'll say this for me, Martin, not for you, but people with too much education, they're fine. And the people with, you can say it's too little education. This is not an anti-education pitch. It is a pro-democracy pitch and a pro-productivity pitch. We need to listen to those people and try to empower those people. So that is Isegaria. And uh, rather than let you get a word in edgeways, which is all very artificial, because then you say, and what is Pahazir? I'll just do all that myself. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. I, I, I'll uh, play the Mino to you. I'll, I'll start my own podcast. Well, 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 you can do Socrates. Uh, well, now I've, now I've done all that. Maybe you should. Maybe I should. I, I just didn't want to no, assume no, you were going to do that. totally fine. Okay. Roll with it. So now. So, so what is so, Parnassia, yeah. Nicholas? So what is, what is Parnassia, Parnassia of which you speak? <laughs> That's right, of which you speak, Socrates. Yes. That's right. So par is very often translated as freedom of speech, but it's a concept which is infused with a, with, with a dimension of ethics. It's an ethical relation, and it's a relation between the powerful and the less powerful. And so another... Modern analogy is that it's a little bit like noblesse oblige, which is about the duties of the powerful to the less powerful. And the relation of parhesia is the relation of truth-telling to power at risk to yourself. And so what it does is it requires of the less powerful person to speak to the powerful person. And then, of course, the idea is that the powerful person is drawn into respecting the courage, the experience of the less powerful person. Now, in ancient Athens, this intriguing notion is not just about a powerful person, but a powerful body. So as far as I can understand it, Socrates is is parhesiastic in his trial, and he basically gives it to them. I mean, it's amazing when you read that stuff. He's very aggressive. And unnecessarily so. It's rather like he fancies this idea of himself. 
as someone is going to really tell them what they need to hear and then to take the consequences. So that is parhesiastic. And um, well, perhaps we'll get onto this in discussion, but I see that as an antidote to this idea that there is a strong ethical relation in speech. It says something about our current notions of free speech. Of course, there's lots of excitement about woke incursions on free speech, but so what? I mean, I hate woke incursions on free speech, but then the answer, which is just free speech, which is irresponsible free speech, and I can say anything I want, and I can say that I won an election which I lost, that's that's a nightmare. That's a nightmare world. So this this idea of free speech or rights without obligations, we're seeing that play out right now in a kind of nightmare world. So that's what I think is worth talking about with Parakasia. Yeah. And I mean, what you were just getting into there, as you were explaining, Parhasia, I think, starts to get into one of the other areas. I don't know if you want to do merit first, but it starts to raise the question of fidelity. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. fidelity to truth, uh, responsibility, but but you could go in whichever order. Yeah, you yeah, want. yeah. Yeah, let's do fidelity next. So, so again, it, yeah, I suppose we've got quite close to this idea of fidelity that what society is is a series of collectivities. This conversation you and I are having is a collectivity. We are part of a joint project, and we each have our individual. We each have our individual needs. One of us might want to show how clever they are. Now that's okay. That might be a good thing. It might sharpen people's wits. Mm-hmm. But if that's all I care about, we, then it's not a joint project. Mm-hmm. And there is always a tension between the private project and the joint project. And so let's say, think of a queue, think of a queue or a line to get on a bus. Then everyone is tangled, everyone understands their private interest, their private interest is to get on the bus. They gain a private interest in keeping their own place in the queue, but that's a collective. So so what's happening is people are being drawn into a collective a world of collective obligations, mutual obligations between each other. So now we've got individuals and we've got a thing going on and everyone has to show some fidelity to it. Now imagine that you're planning out an airport and you everyone gets in a queue to go through security. And then someone says, oh, well, let's have a special queue for VIPs. And now maybe there's a good reason for a special queue for VIPs. Maybe there's a good reason for letting captains of planes and hostesses and stewards and so on through before us, but maybe there's not. (laughs) And so that's a very simple example of how quickly the people making rules, the question arises, are they making rules with fidelity to the purposes of this social institution that they are governing. And I think what we've seen over the last generation or so is a presumption by the powerful, those, by the way, are these upper middle class folks who've all got university degrees, a presumption that this system is kind of for them. They know that they've got to make the buses run on time, but take universities. Universities used to have this interesting career structure where you agreed to be the head of your department 
as a favor to other people. <laughs> you might even have got slightly more money. But if you cared about being an academic, you really cared about your work. Now what's happened in universities is that universities, and this has happened in schools, and you may want to say something about that, but they've become far more a creature of that they're a sort of labyrinth of rules and KPIs. And it's not very surprising that people who make those rules and those KPIs do rather well out of this system, or at least I think actually these systems make everyone miserable, but they do. Yeah. it's quite clear that the people running them are doing pretty well for themselves. In universities, vice chancellor's salaries have gone up from, you know, a bit more than a professor to four or five times as much as a professor in my country, which is one of the worst for this. In schools, teachers get basically oppressed by having to meet all these KPIs, meet all these reporting requirements, which are administered by a bunch of people who don't care that much about the education. Yeah. They care about keeping politicians happy, running various projects, which, you know, a politician will make a promise about, you know, I'll teach your kids the basics, that'll be turned into a program, and then the teachers will get a whole bunch of new KPIs. A pretty disastrous system. So that's fidelity and... Yeah, it's the necessity in every social system for the people running the system to show ultimate fidelity to the purposes of the system, not to the system and not to themselves. Gotcha, yeah. And just for maybe maybe those of us in the States, what can you define what the acronym KPI refers to? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was a kind of universal one. It's a key performance indicator. So it's maybe, all these. Maybe things. it is in management speak, but but it does, yeah, it's yeah, not, yeah. It's not used yeah. in my in my sphere. So anyway, no, yeah. that's interesting. I, well, that's interesting. So KPI, yeah. key performance indicator, all these artificial things that you have to, you know, like you, Martin. There will be a proportion of your school who gets certain grades, and if the people in your school <clears throat> don't get those grades then you haven't met your KPI. Yeah. Now, that might be a very good thing. It might be quite a bad thing. But unfortunately, once the KPIs get set up, nobody cares too much about those right. things. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that made sense. I was able to follow, but 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 I was thinking some of the... Except for KPIs. Some of the viewers. Yeah, yeah. I can see how it functioned yeah. there. Yeah, so, yeah. So that that makes a lot of sense. And we'll, we'll come back to fidelity. And maybe it even goes on, I mean, beyond... Well, I think... And I'm thinking here of the competition delusion, which you wrote, where you invoke Alastair McIntyre's work quite a bit and his distinction between extrinsic and intrinsic goods. Internal, internal and external. Internal and external. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That that even beyond fidelity to the system, not to the rules or to the spirit of the system, that that involves a kind of virtue, you know, the process of trying to inculcate virtue. It's very tied up with virtue ethics, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I think, so So I'll explain the, the way McIntyre introduces his concept of external and internal goods is he talks about teaching a young girl to play chess. And so the external goods of chess are glory, winning. They're things that we might want to do. We might want to win a game of football as much as we want to get, win a game of chess. We might want to win an argument. So the goods that we're getting of winning are external to the game. We might get glory. If we're Magnus Carlsen, we'll get money and we'll get fame. So those are the three essential external goods. 
And that's how we pay people. That's how we get people to do their job. That's how, in an economic sense, we draw resources from one activity to another. We have to pay for people's time. And then the internal goods of chess are competitive intensity is an internal good of chess, analytic accuracy, imagination, and so on. Those things are internal goods. Now, we're going to give the girl some candy if she wins, and we're giving her an, an artificial external incentive to win. The idea is it gives her enough incentive to learn the rules and that after a period of time, she will buy into this game of chess and she'll want to get better at chess and so on. But the candy also gives her a temptation to cheat. And if she cheats, she won't get the internal goods. Right. <laughs> it's much harder to teach yourself to get better if you can click your fingers and get all those external goods and beat people. And so you can also think of this as something like the letter and the spirit. To play in the spirit of the game is something similar to what I'm talking about mm -hmm. when I talk about fidelity. Absolutely. And our systems are so vast and so involve so many different systems. Think of our system of media. Well, it's the system at Fox News. It's the system at MSNBC. It's the system of Twitter and Facebook and the New York Times. And that is the system. And we would like this whole system to work with fidelity to the internal goods of the press, which is to help people become informed, to feed their intrinsic interest in things. Well, we're a vast distance from that. And so what has happened is that people have essentially become acculturated to thinking that their own career is the preeminent thing to think about. And it's an important thing to think about. I, said, I don't want people not to think about it. But if they're not thinking about it with a reasonable amount of devotion to the idea of the fit, of the point of what they're doing, the spirit of what they're doing, where we get ourselves lost. And I think that we are lost for want of fidelity. Yeah, I would agree. So then the fourth that you haven't summed up for us yet would be merit. Yep. So yeah, so I think merit, yeah, so merit is a fascinating thing because everyone was completely astonished when Wikipedia arose out of nothing, you know, an encyclopedia builds itself. And I was chairing a thing called the Australian Government 2.0 Task Force, which was looking at social media, or was then called Web2, this idea of the internet as a collaborative platform, not just a hub and spoke thing where, you know, a company sells tickets to its events and so on. And I was involved in trying to think about and write a report on what this meant for government. So we were writing this report and everyone was saying, look at Wikipedia. Can we have a Wikipedia of government? We could just have anyone doing anything. And then we have the Arab Spring and everyone says, look, everyone's doing it for themselves. And so there's this idea, which is you just connect up everyone and everyone's, you know, everyone's a pretty good guy. They're just like me. Everyone wants to do the right thing. It's just these evil politicians and senior managers. They're our problem, not us. We're, we're lovely people. Mm -hmm. And you just have to connect us up. Well, how's that going there? <laughs> that didn't work out too well on social media. And I think people don't understand to this very day 
why Wikipedia works. Because Wikipedia works because it is a new kind of meritocracy. Or it's a pretty old kind of meritocracy. It's just connected up with new kinds of connecting tissue. So if you want to, I can make, you can make a few changes to most, almost every page on Wikipedia, probably not Donald Trump's or Elon Musk's because everybody wants to let off steam on those on those pages. And so the system will, will possibly lock them. But anyway, what happens is I make some changes. They, nobody crosses them out. I mean, they just sit there. The army of people at the next level at Wikipedia don't, don't identify me as a, a troll or a vandal or any of this stuff. If I then, if I then do, I'm, I'll get these numbers slightly wrong, but I think if I do 30 changes in a week, then I get a new status. And then I do several hundred in a month and I go up. And then at some stage, there's actually a process of selecting you for the next level of authority on Wikipedia where you'll be able to, you know, start turning people on and off and stuff like that. There's actually a job interview process. It's really quite like a job interview at a corporation or any other workplace. So Wikipedia is a meritocracy a quite a you know a big unusual but strong meritocracy and the next part of this explanation is that wikipedia happens to be able to converge on something which they call the npov the neutral point of view wikipedia does not tell us whether donald trump was a, is a good or a bad president i'll tell you that he's the worst president you guys have had it tells you when he was born. And you and I can disagree about when Donald Trump was born. And if we can't agree, someone can help, can end up you yeah, know, saying, the score. Here's, here's the evidence. So that's the recipe for merit. So, so this is this invisible thing. Who knew yeah. that merit was really important? And so another way to understand what's wrong with the world is that we have hierarchies they're hierarchies of merit of a kind, but they're the wrong kind of merit. Yeah. And self-evidently, the people at the top of hierarchies, their primary merit is getting to the top of that hierarchy, yeah. and that may yeah. not be quite yeah. what we want. So that's the significance of merit. Yeah. So you just told me a little bit more information with more depth mm. than I was previously aware of about how Wikipedia functions. So it's interesting mm. to me about that example. And you flesh it out more than you do in the short document that we're kind of yeah. basing this Yeah, I was on. trying to keep it as short as possible. Yeah, but what's interesting about the way you just described it is that meritocracy is, I think, pretty clearly different from most other supposed meritocracies that we all have various sorts of contact with in our places of work or, in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Insofar yeah. as... It's a not-for-profit, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the contributors yeah, are, right. are doing it completely for the internal goods. Yeah, I think. Well, well, I think so right at the fidelity. I think right at the top. Yeah. Yeah. No, but yeah, but you're quite right. You're yeah. quite right. So this idea of doing it voluntarily is a very important part of them doing mm -hmm. it for the internal goods and the fidelity and so on. So, Submission, so yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's definitely right. But I don't think we should be too naive about it because, of course, almost everybody causing the chaos on Twitter and Facebook, they're volunteers too. Yes. Now, there are some people who are paid trolls. So these are these two parts of our nature. So volunteering itself isn't 
inherently good, but it has different, it has very different qualities and is less polluted by external goods. Yeah. But the Twitter trolling, the unpaid Twitter trolling and, you know, social media nonsense and, and whatnot is, you're absolutely right. It's on a volunteer basis, but I, I would say it's generally done without fidelity Mm. to any kind of yeah. endeavor that has real intrinsic Correct. goods, right? Correct. So and, it's very and, individualistic and or yeah. kind of mob-oriented yeah. in a very shallow, simplistic sense, generally speaking. Exactly. And the way I would put it is that what's going on there is that these people are counterfeiters. Mm -hmm. So they are counterfeiting a debate. <laughs> They're simulating a disagreement in a debate and we fall for it because we're programmed to converse and to try to agree and to be frustrated if we can't agree. And these people mostly are not interested in all their rights and no responsibility at all, but they know that, and we actually fall into this practice ourselves when we get mad enough, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. But everything they do is not, there isn't fidelity to the joint project. There's basically, fuck you. I mean, some people will be doing it almost professionally, I mean, there are people paid to do this professionally for politicians and all the rest of it. And spinning, that's another thing, which mm -hmm. doesn't have to be super high aggro, but PR, there's all that stuff going, all that. I regard that as there's something counterfeit about it, or if you'd like to put it in the other language, it's without fidelity. It's without any fidelity to this idea that we are inhabiting a form which is the form of communication. But we've given up the idea of communicating some time ago and we're basically saying, fuck you, I'm right, you're a fool, you're an asshole, etc." I don't mean that personally, Martin. No offence taken. No offence taken. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Well, so should we move to some of the questions let's that my that. students came up with? Let's do that. So yep, let's do it. I think they kind of fall under a couple of different categories. So I'll just list the sort of general categories and then we can get into some of the specific yep. questions. <clears throat> so one Actually, Martin, yeah. why don't I why don't I interrupt you and yeah. say it's important to me, people will realize that it's important to me just from what I've said so far about his segaria, I suppose, about a quality of speech. It's important to me that these <clears throat> ideas somehow resonate with high school students that, mm -hmm. that I'm not trying to have a seminar with university philosophy graduates, you know. So I'd be interested in any reflections you had on, you know, the extent to which they, the, yeah, what kind of reaction these, on the one hand, foreign concepts, and on the other hand, I'm hoping strangely familiar concepts yeah. might have with your students. Yeah. Well, let me say a couple of things about that. <clears throat> and also, as you were talking on a number of points before when you were going over Esegoria and also Parhesia, I, when you would refer to kind of college-educated elites or educated elites, a term that I believe originates in Barbara Ehrenreich's work that kept coming to my mind was the professional managerial class, which yeah. isn't universally used. It tends to be used by people on the on the left, to the left of kind of, you know, yeah. the Democratic Party well, and, and the Labour Party. Yeah, but, but also, by, also by Tucker Carlson. And right, yeah, they've, they, yeah some of the right-wing populists have picked up on it, so it's often abbreviated yep. as the yep. BMC. So, and, and I think it, it, at least for rough generalizing purposes, it, it kind of is, is, a, is a nice way to sum that up. So one yep. thing that I, I would say 
the ideas do kind of make sense at some level, right, to students. One thing that I note in one of the categories of questions here, because some of the questions entail a kind of a pushback against the idea, because the students that I'm teaching all see themselves as future members of uh, the yeah, professional yeah. <laughs> managerial class. And they're already hip enough to know, right? If, if that yeah. makes sense, right? They're, uh, you know, they've, uh, they've already to varying extents. Um, and they're advanced. They're the advanced they're class. They're the too. advanced class yeah. and they're just about to go yeah. on to college next year, right? You know, yeah. they're starting to think about that ladder that they're going to have to kick it, exa away. Exa <laughs> exactly, right? So, so one of the, you know, family of questions essentially comes to, you know, like, you know, you're really going to trust these yahoos to make decisions? Yeah, yeah. Is it, are they supposed yeah, to be binding yeah. decisions, right? You know, that's yeah. not a fair – I'll read some of their actual yeah. ways of formulating I it. I mean, it's a very – yeah, it's a very, perfectly reasonable it question. Is. Does You know, does democracy work because as – I think it might have been Winston Churchill, but anyway, a British parliamentarian said – you know, you only have to spend a bit of time with the average person to be horrified right. at the whole idea that this is the way we're going to do things. Yeah. Anyway, so go on. Yeah. So, so one one student or 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 one way that a group of students formulated the question, they said, "Well, I like the premise of the citizens' jury." Uh, you know, actually, I just realized you haven't actually explained the idea of citizen juries. No, 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 no. Uh, well, 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 one one thing we've left out, and I was just going to bring yeah. it in. At some stage, yeah. it wasn't necessary to go through it in a programmatic sense. But the document, this four-point document, we've introduced the concepts and then I've <coughs> introduced three things that, we that I think uh, take us to take us from the, okay, we should have more of these nice things to, well, what mechanisms might help us there? And those concepts are competition, which everyone understands, and the fact that we we don't, I think, understand competition very well. Competition is a powerful vehicle, but it's always in a, you know, just like this example of playing chess, it's always in the context of a game. So a competition itself has a cooperative element, which is what you're competing about. That isn't very well understood. I've got this other, and then what I call decompetitive representation. So a democracy, even Athens democracy, which was a, a large a large provincial town. I think the total population might have been 180,000 people and there were about 60,000 or fewer citizens. Even a town like that, a city like that, a small city like that, needed a great deal of democratic representation. In other words, you take a group and that group stands for the whole. Now, it is true that there was this thing called the Ecclesia or the Assembly, and it made decisions. It was Every citizen had a right to be there and vote. But the city ran using other mechanisms. To run the city was a boule. The boule was 500 people chosen at random from the population, and at any one time, only 50 of them were doing most of the work, and that, that would rotate. This is, was also true of the courts and so on. Now, there are many things to be said about this. I think of democracy as a three-legged stool. The three, the three legs are direct democracy. And in the Athenian situation, that was voting at the Ecclesia. In ours, it is voting in an election. And then there are two different kinds of representation, representation by election and representation by sampling. Representation by election, we all understand what that is. And representation by sampling, we all understand what that is. We call it juries or sortition or selection by lot. You randomly select or find a way 
to get people just like us, a representative sample of the community, 12 people on a jury, could be 50 people on a council, randomly selected, and they represent the community. Now, I call, among many other, there are the differences between these two ways of representing the people are profound. They go deep, and those people who are proposing more use of citizen juries or representation by sampling, I think, I mean, I think they're doing a great job, and I'm part of that movement. But I think there is so there's so much riches by just pausing and thinking about how profoundly different these two ways of representing the people are, and therefore of the different roles they might play in the best possible world we can build. But to get back to my point, one of the things that the jury selection of people, one of the things that building social decision-making, political decision-making, legal decision-making around a jury rather than people you elect is that it is, I call it, decompetitive. There's no competition. No one's saying, please, please put me in there. It's not a meritocracy. The idea that merit's important, but it's taken to emerge as a product of this way of doing things. We don't say you're on the jury because you're particularly good at being a juror. So decompetitive representation, much greater use of mechanisms to represent the people that are not competitive and therefore don't favour the well-educated, the self-assertive, the narcissistic, the Machiavellian, mm-hmm. <laughs> the highly more intelligent in many ways. You know, there's some good things and there's some bad things mm-hmm. in there I hope everyone can accept. Mm-hmm. That's what happens through through a competitive system. You get a different story through a jury. So, so that is a critical thing that I think is something that can help us rebuild our world. And again, not just in politics, in a school, in a factory, elements of representation by sampling, not representation by competition, I think, mm-hmm. are very important. And then finally, well, I think probably we can leave it there mm-hmm. and if, and we may come up with an opportunity for me to describe decompetitive merit selection, but let's leave that okay. to later. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. So in the context of that idea of trying to use decompetitive representation, you know, as you called it, by means of sortition, jury selection. Yeah, sampling, representation sampling. by sampling. Yeah. yeah, by random selection by lot. So what some of my students wanted to ask you was, essentially, what do we do given that there are lots of people that are politically apathetic or they have little or no knowledge about the depth of current issues that they might be sorting through? So how would a citizen's jury ensure that the people on the jury would have enough knowledge to reasonably participate in the process? So I don't know anyone who's been exposed to this process who hasn't been somewhere between very impressed and completely blown away. Mm -hmm. It's not the case that the problem sort of magically disappears. There will be, in a group of 12 jurors or, or 50 counsellors, there will be a few slobs, there will be, maybe there'll be a person who's intellectually disabled, but almost everyone will do their best. The jury itself, well, a citizen jury, one is working as a standing citizen jury in part of Belgium at the moment, and the ethos on those bodies is very responsible, people rising to the occasion, and they don't want to make decisions as our politicians are forced to constantly and our media people are forced to constantly talk about stuff they know nothing about. So in fact, 
I would flip it the other way and say that this one of the strengths of this is that people say, well, we can't make a decision on this until we know more. And so the whole idea is that initially by way of facilitators, and ultimately I would like to think these systems of government would acquire their own procedures, their own ways of doing things. But one of the things that's most compelling about this is that these groups want to know more and they want to learn enough to make the decision. And I would go, I would go further and say that virtually everyone caught up in the competitive system either doesn't particularly want to know mm -hmm. or yeah. they can't afford to know. Yeah. So, for instance, we'll have a candidates debate and then we'll immediately cross to a bunch of journos who have got no particular... There's no expert on who's won the debate, but they'll tell you instantly all about it. There's marvellous stories of people in Fox News, but it's not just Fox News. I expect this happens in every studio where the moderator is being made up and the debate's going on and they don't really know what's going on and they're doing lots of last-minute things. And then the cameras roll, hi, I'm an expert, and I'm going to pretend that I watched this whole thing, and I didn't even do that. So what we've got in this now toxified competitive system is the very thing that your students are worried about. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I discussed the, that with them at, at some length. I mean, because if you are participating as an elected official, so you're a part of the competitive representation, right, leg yep. of the stool, you know, you actually have an incentive to maintain your position to not admit that you don't know. That you don't know what you're talking about. That you about. don't know what you're That's talking right. about, right? So That's then right. you have all of these incentives to fudge, to throw red herrings here and there to change the subject, to to feign some kind of competence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's just and that's just in politics, but where I spend a lot of my time still thinking and before I got into this politics, into this democracy caper, I used to think much more about what happened within government bureaucracies. Right. And I chaired this thing called the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, which was an organisation still running that does great work trying to build social systems that actually work, you know, like doing difficult things, like trying to keep families that are under stress from basically going into crisis and stuff like that. And I remember talking to one of the teams. We had a conversation between the board and one of the teams who was designing a system, and they said... Well, our hunch is this and that, and we're going to measure this and so on. And I sort of stopped them right there and I said, you've just said a word that cannot be spoken even inside a government department, let alone outside a government department. A minister can't say, look, our hunch is this, because that's a, to use IT security talk, that's an attack surface. That is a perfect opportunity for their opponent to say, oh, well, the minister's now running the country on a hunch. Right. That's exactly what has to happen. When you don't know what you're doing, you try as responsibly as you can to manage your own ignorance and do the right thing. Right. Yeah. And then to build from your ignorance to a greater sense of knowledge. My argument would be that governments trying to do difficult things are completely paralysed by everyone going through the motions. The tone is, well, the adults have arrived. Well, pig's ass they have. The pretenders have arrived. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm right there with you on, on, on that one. So 
So yeah, that's, I'm doing rather well here, at least for at least as far as your as, agreement. As far as I, but but you're kind of preaching to yeah. the choir to a certain degree. Oh um, uh, yeah, well maybe maybe some of your students will watch and think, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, 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 hopefully so. There were some students who, you know, I, I mean, I I I gave you a version of the question that was. Yeah, not overly hostile, or or you know that there were some more def- slightly more defensive versions. Like, why shouldn't the people who yeah. have studied and taken the time yeah. to yeah right? Well, that's a good question. Master. From their point of view, that's a good question, yeah. and the answer is a, and the answer is a long one. Yeah, but but in a way, I kind of agree with them. And what I would say is that I want this. You've heard that one of my four things that I think is most important and something that is not talked about by most people promoting citizen juries is the idea of merit. So I want a world which is actually promoting merit, which is actually encouraging people to feel good about the work they do because it's great work. And I think the system we have now doesn't do any of that. It does reward merit in terms of money or it rewards people who get the marks and and toe the line and mm-hmm. and go through the motions. Yeah. But it's got a terrible problem in connecting up those low-level performance things. I mean, they might take a lot of effort, but just passing a test isn't the hard part. The, the hard part is saving a patient. The hard part is making a correct call when you're a judge. And we want a world that honours merit. And I don't think the world we have does that. Right, right, right. Because of the places where competition sort of overflows its proper bank, so to speak, and then warps that selection well, process, well, well, right? Well, there's an absolutely marvelous essay, which I suggest very strongly that you expose your students to, and it's by Paul Graham, the Silicon Valley founder of Y Combinator and uh, tremendous. When he writes things, I look at them and I think, God, I wish I could have written that. And this is an article on the most important thing you learnt at school and the worst, and that is to mistake passing the test for having the knowledge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're, They're amazingly different things. And our system doesn't really conduct itself with much curiosity about how those things could at least be narrowed. So students, they do feel that, then they feel rightly somewhat put upon that, you know, they get lectures from their parents and the whole system is telling them, do you, especially in the United States, yeah. do you want to be a failure? Do you want to be hanging, you know, you, well, in America, lot, lots of people hang on by yeah. their knuckles the whole time. Yeah. So in that situation, you're going to feel pretty unhappy about people who can survive without putting in that effort. But I'm not in any sense... I'm not personally well disposed to people who don't make effort and I don't believe the sort of system that I'm arguing we should build. I think it honours effort and it honours merit far more than the system that we have, which it honours effort, I suppose, but not real focus on doing great things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps, it, I mean, it, it honours merit detached from fidelity to... Mm. The, exactly, the which is merit. social goods yeah. that we would want yeah. to it, so, so, so that's right. And and hard work not connected to good work, I can take or leave, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the other categories of questions was specifically directed to yeah. My pronunciation is probably all over the place when we hit the Greek words here. And essentially <laughs> – how how do we ensure that it has bites? So one group said, how can we assure that parhesia works? 
that speaking from the heart in this way will cause those in power to let go of their vanity. Is it, isn't it yep. possible that the rich and powerful today are so used to being pandered to that they simply yep. ignore those that refuse to appeal to them in that sycophantic way? Yeah, well, I think that, that, that yeah, I, I'm afraid um, this reminds me of a Monty Python sketch where it's called Stake Your Claim and the person says that he's, you know, Henry VIII's son and they say, but Henry VIII was four centuries ago, how can you be his son? And he says, yes, that's where my whole argument falls down. So <laughs> your student, unfortunately, and what I'm saying here is rather more tragic than all the rest of it, which is here's the system for getting what we want. Right. So I'm drawing attention to how hollowed out our notion of free speech is, right. how hollowed out our notion of rights are. And Alistair McIntyre, who you mentioned earlier, he's got a similar idea that we need to rebuild our world around some sense of taking on of obligation by the powerful and by the weak to this idea of fidelity, this idea that binds us together. And of course, the powerful will, there will be many situations where the powerful continue to help themselves and not help the weak sufficiently. In a material sense, yeah. I don't think the powerful are massively exploiting the less powerful. If you compare that to other periods in history, the poor and and Unfortunately, in the United States, this isn't as true as in most developed countries. But I'll speak for my own country. In Australia, the poor do not starve. They have a miserable life in many ways. But the material side of things is relatively well addressed. The sense of respect for people has not been well addressed. And I think that it's getting worse. It's getting worse with speech codes all kinds of ways in which trying to speak about certain things is being being stigmatized and hounded people try and hound it out of existence so so that's that's the situation that we have and so the other thing about parhesia is that this is something i haven't talked about yet but i'm going to say something which might shock people which is that there are limits to how good a concept of a concept like accountability is. Everyone talks about accountability as if it's a great thing. Well, part of the toxic world that we're in is because we've built such complex chains of accountability that they're all subverted by all the people in the chains, all the people in the systems. They pretend to be accountable. They write little reports for each other saying everything's fine here. So they don't actually let on that things are not fine, there are a whole, there's this that we're worried about, that's going quite well, and so on and so forth. So we've built this out of idolizing the accountability of the low to the high, we've built an awful prison for ourselves. And the notion of this ancient Athenian notion of Paisia is not a world of accountability at all. So it, the person at the bottom is not trying to prove anything. The person at the bottom is speak, is to use a cliche, from Oprah, they're speaking their truth. They're, they're communicating their view, what is moving them, and there is an obligation for people to respond to that. Will they? Well, that's a huge dilemma in human communication. We're not very good at getting into the heads even of our wives and our children and our parents, let alone people who are a different color, from a different culture, speaking a different language and so on. Mm -hmm. But I see it, Parsi, as a kind of a radical assertion of the necessity 
to try to get people to speak to each other and to listen to each other. And it's not an easy business. Yeah. And maybe it bears mentioning before we hit another question, I mean, in in the context of ancient Athenian democracy, of course, you know, women and slaves were not citizens, right? The citizens were free men. So clearly there are those restrictions in place. But then amongst the population designated citizens, you had everybody from nobles and aristocrats to cobblers, shoemakers, you know, butchers and bakers. Yeah. And so since they did have equal votes when they are called up by lot um, and doing those civic duties, that to some extent did provide some of the bite. You know, the butcher and the baker have an equal vote when they're called up by sortition to the aristocrat. That's right. That's right. And whereas in the competitive representational system or or where we emphasize it in our current, you know, in Australia and the U.S., um, those aristocratic tendencies, they can tend to buy more advertising time, they can use yep. the wealth yep. to control things yep. in a way yep. that sortition just doesn't allow, which now, 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 gives per- the, part yes, easy of that thinking? bite. It seems to me yes. that that's one of the ways you'd have to do it. So so the other thing that I think is worth mentioning is something that I really locked onto. So the French philosopher, <laughs> historian, theorist, Michel Foucault, I'm not a great fan, but he's written a lot on Parhasia, particularly. Mm. And I, th- this thing really jumped out at me. So I'll just read you my summary of one of the elements of Parhasia. Foucault tells us, mm-hmm. we gain confidence in Parhasiastic speech, not because it persuades us that it is more scientific, based on objective evidence, as if we are the arbiter of truth, but because the speaker speaks from their heart, And that is demonstrated to us by the fact that they're putting themselves at risk. Mm. Completely different idea to to the scientific idea, which is, oh, we're just sort of trying to find out the truth. Well, you know, the Greeks invented tragedy. Yeah. (laughs) It's a more tragic relation. Mm -hmm. It's not looking to utopia. It's not saying, oh, just do what we're supposed to do and everything will work out. It's a much more dramatic assertion of people's separateness, I guess, and their capacity to use courage yeah. to penetrate that world between themselves yeah. and another and their world and the and their society. Yeah, it's a risky existential commitment. Yeah. Or potentially. And that's so. why and that and that's why I'm saying that Socrates is the paragon of that. Yeah, absolutely. So to move on to another family of questions yep. that I saw that yep. students were putting out they fall into kind of two other primary categories. One of them is, so how do you foster the kind of virtues, the fidelity in society, given that, and that some students would draw attention to kind of the prevalence of so-called cancel culture or, you know, the degradation unleashed by social media dependencies, these sorts of things. Other students drew attention to kind of the overuse of competition, the way that competition can kind of drive you to a dog-eat-dog sort of, you know, self-indulgent, you know, kind of self-seeking type of of way of being in the world. So how do you foster that virtue and that fidelity to the social goals? So so I think... This is a bit like falling off a log, and it comes from representation by sampling. So if you just get ordinary people together, this is in our DNA. This makes us a unique species. We have 
if you look at the our smartness at simple cognitive tasks compared to a chimpanzee, the chimpanzee will beat us on certain things like memory and number counting when it learns how to do it, partly in the same way that autistic people have remarkable characteristics. There are all kinds of things in our brains that get in the way of simple cognitive functions. Our great quality is that we knit our intentions together. We invented the pronoun we. We will go hunting. We will build this shelter. So we are incredibly good at this. Mm -hmm. uh, so in small groups, small equal groups, we are very, very good at this. So that's one answer. Another answer is to say, well, let's look at what you talked about, which is woke culture. Where does that come from? That comes from a completely different place. That comes from the world that we're in being built as systems of words, ideologies and things like that. And people, a lot of people like power, maybe even these people in these qualitarian groups that I just decided, people are quite, quite enamoured of power. And even if they're not naturally power hungry, you only need a few people who are power hungry for people to need to be power aware to preserve their own equality in a position. And what woke culture is doing, what woke claims are doing is that they're about words, they're about speech codes, and these are at the level of legibility to the system. So I'll give you an example. I was just reading it this morning. It's a London group of people and something comes up. This isn't a perfect example, but I'll go with it. So a person says it's not okay to say you don't feel comfortable among Muslim members and that it's wrong that women wear hijab. That's prejudice. And the woman who's attacked says, well, you know me, I don't dislike anyone, but we've fought hard for black women's rights since the 1970s. And when women put themselves under that headscarf, it feels like they're betraying what we fought for. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to argue one side or the other of that, but that is a form of, that is a form of, meaning that's coming through that is invisible to the speech layer, to the layer of speech codes, which you would say, you would say in this school or in this state, these things are deemed to be hate speech. So everything is focused on legibility to the system, legibility to the police, to a judge. And that's not about our capacity to solve problems in groups. Mm -hmm. And if we so claim more to that. So you're contrasting that quotation you were just reading, you're, you're contrasting the sentiment expressed that this feels contrary to kind of the the women's rights activism that we had been Well, my, my, well, my point is, I mean, I mean, I'm making all of my points in words, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but my point is that in a bureaucratic system, in a legal system, which specifies things at a very high level and says the following things are deemed to be hate speech or whatever, mm -hmm. disrespectful or whatever, then it leaves out the ability of other kinds of meaning yeah. to get through. Yeah. And in a way, I'm a little disappointed with that quote, using it for my purposes, mm -hmm. because it's really both points that are made are ideological points. Right, they are. Yeah. That example was an example that a former boss of mine used to give 
and he wasn't really arguing this thing. It was just a story he told where he was talking about a, a something he oversaw on a tram where some Australians said to a Chinese person in the tram, I don't know what he exactly said. He said, said something which obviously we would take to be racist, and I'm not saying wasn't. Mm-hmm. How are you going, Dim Sim, he said to him. Mm-hmm. And the guy said to him, how are you going, kangaroo? And firstly, it might be racist to some extent, and I'm not saying that's a good thing mm-hmm. by any means. And secondly, maybe it's actually not that racist. Maybe it's, you know, how you going, my black friend? That doesn't have to be a racist comment. So that's the life world working itself out. Mm-hmm. And then there are speech codes. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't ever have speech codes right. or any of those things. I'm saying that solving it up here somehow, yeah, it, 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 it dominates. Right. It, falsifies it changes the experience in the life world and and there are many many things that we should be honoring that we should be very wary of doing that because our communities i've just read jane jacobs the death and life of great american cities which is all about the invisibility of so much that makes cities work essentially we now call it social capital it's invisibility to planners mm. and it's nurturing within the life world. So that's the sort of thing I'm trying to appeal to there. Yeah, maybe I know you prefer not to do this, but you, you could maybe potentially clarify what I think you're not by using some terminology from, from the discipline of semiotics, the study of how okay. signs and symbols yep. work. Sort of that yeah. maybe focusing on speech codes while it might be necessary, it might be important in certain situations, certain contexts. Yeah. If it's allowed yeah. to, to dominate, I guess, our intentions with respect to things that are not merely linguistic, yes. then, you know, yeah, exactly. and in some semiotic yeah. theories, you'd say the sign consists of the signifier, which is the word or the symbol, and the signified, yeah. which is the thing it's pointing to. Yes. So that it could take, we, we might be taking our eyes off of the ball. Yeah, exactly. The underlying exactly realities right. we're trying to refer to. Exactly. So that's a, that's a uh, yeah. problem, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah. And, go on. Sorry, you finished. No, that, that uh, makes sense what you're, what you're getting at there, I think, to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I'm now, as you may know, I'm sort of experimenting with different types of expression. I don't write essays as much as I now do these types mm-hmm. of things. They're very different things. Yeah. I also, and making explainer videos that have graphics in them mm-hmm. that say, you know, we might be talking about two pathways and you liken them by showing a person walking in one direction rather than another direction. These are all both the words in an essay, the image, everything we use is not the thing itself. It's a symbol. So, so the significance of that is to say that we have to proceed if we want to use a speech code, and I certainly don't want to argue we should never do so. We have to proceed with due humility about the extent to which it can comprehend everything that we want to be done and do so in a way that is true to our intentions. Yeah. Because very often it's not. Right. Yeah. No, that that, that makes that, that was nicely summed up. So the next type of question, family of questions, is tackling how viable using things like citizen juries would be at scale 
for, say, the United States or Australia. And you talk about very briefly in the piece, and I think you've talked about this a little bit more thoroughly elsewhere and some other stuff you've written and posted, the idea of having a people's house alongside, say, the two houses yeah. of the American Congress or the Australian Parliament that's selected by sortition. Yep. And so some students are saying, you know, you mentioned it wouldn't have to be binding, but would you want it to be binding? If so, yep. how would that process work out? Yeah, and just how viable is this as, a, I guess, a federal-level project sure. for a major um, nation state? Yeah, so I... I proceed in all these things with a fair bit of humility. I'm not arguing that we completely replace what we have. And one reason I'm not doing that is what, who would care? <laughs> things will, you know, there's a lot of power in the world and I have very little of it. And so let's just get a grip here and work out what things might be most beneficial, minimal, minimal things that might be most beneficial and then if they are beneficial and they're minim and their unintended and bad consequences are minimal then we can go further but you know i think it's probably important to proceed from an understanding of how busted things are particularly in your country mm -hmm. agreed so we have a situation where liz cheney i've got her name right haven't i is a very senior republican who draws the line on direct attacks on American democracy. And she is hounded out of office, what by? By intimidation, because as you may recall, when she first started blowing the whistle on what was going on, she survived in her leadership position in the House of Representatives. And that was because there was a secret ballot of Republican members of the House of Representatives. It was only when everyone could see who was voting which way that she lost her position. So that's how debauched the system we have is now. And so that also gives you a clue of the sorts of things that you would want a people's house for. Firstly, I think you want the people's house because in all the Western democracies, people are obsessed with the opinion of the people and unobsessed, uninterested and completely ignorant of the considered opinion of the people. The considered opinion of the people is a thing that can be detected when it goes through the crucible of discussion and votes and so on that happens in a house. So the people's house would deliberate on things and vote on things and people would know what the votes were. It's very clear to me, I won't go into it further here, but it's very clear to me that the opinion of the British people in 2016 was 52% to 48% that they should leave the European Union. And the considered opinion of the people at around that time was about 60% against leaving the European Union and 40% in favour of leaving the European Union because that was the result after you had a citizen jury held on the subject. Mm -hmm. The people going into the citizen jury split 52-48 precisely the way the vote was and by the end of the citizen jury about 60% of them said, hang on, this is a bad idea. So a people's house simply, if it had no power at all, simply gives you a window 
on the biggest bits of craziness that our current system is getting up to. And a secret ballot on the impeachment of Donald Trump in the Senate would have seen him impeached because decency remains and a citizen House would have impeached Donald Trump. So one of the things that this process is very good at doing is defending basic democratic norms. I mean, I think a lot of the people, even the people storming the Capitol on January the 6th, thought of themselves as Democrats. They've been convinced that everyone's lying to them and they're the only ones in possession of the truth. If you ask American citizens what they think of gerrymandering, 90% think it's terrible and they split very slightly more Democrats than Republicans think it's terrible, but then those numbers are about 92% of Democrats and 88% of Republicans. So it's precisely defending basic democratic norms against gerrymandering and the kind of thing that the Trump organization is trying to get up to subvert the certification of elections and send in dodgy electors to the Electoral College. It's precisely those things that you can expect, above all, a citizen jury to defend. You can't any longer be confident that the Supreme Court will defend it in your country. At the moment, at the moment we can be confident in our country, however, the Prime Minister of Australia appoints High Court judges. So you only need the process of toxification and polarisation for over a period of time for that to change. So this is the sort of place where we can use citizen juries to bolster basic democratic norms and the sinews of our system, the arteries of our system. And that's precisely what they're doing in Michigan. So in Michigan, they have a body that I think its makeup is a certain number of Democrats, a certain number of Republicans, and the rest, a representative sample of ordinary people from the community. And they have redrawn the maps. You call it de redistricting mm -hmm. in your country. They've redrawn the maps and they've made it fair. Those are the kinds of things. So Citizen House is just there showing what people think. And then if you want to ask where it should have power, it could have the power, I think, a fantastic power to give it extremely minor seeming power is the power to impose a secret ballot. Imagine a power to impose a secret ballot going into the debt ceiling malarkey that you're going into. So the citizen assembly could say, we have decided that the vote in the House of Representatives and the Senate on the debt ceiling will be conducted by secret ballot. So there are very small levers that can have a very mm -hmm. big effect. And you can know that if they're used, that that use reflects the considered opinion of the citizens. What could be better than that? Yeah, that, that makes sense. No, yeah, I think that would potentially clarify for, for some of the students that were raising those questions. And, and I suppose the, the modest nature of some of those tweaks, which still might be more achievable in a parliamentary system like yours than under the regime of the U.S. Constitution, which which really makes well. You've but you've got but you've got citizen initiated referendums. So sure. you know you can a big campaign. Well, a couple of points. One is you can have a big that there are openings in your system. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I would say is that I'm right now trying to raise money and raise awareness in this country and elsewhere for a philanthropically funded 
crowd-funded standing citizen assembly. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to have power right. to have power in a democracy, sure. That the power of influence, mm-hmm. the power of pointing, mm-hmm. the power of saying that is the considered opinion of the, of the citizens. Yeah, so, absolutely. So that, I think, is the main, my, that would be my main pathway to sorting this out. Mm-hmm. And it would not be going cap in hand to politicians and saying, please do this mm-hmm. because politicians aren't too, you know, politicians have got enough constraints on them. They're pretty busy trying to get stuff done and it's pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they, they're not thinking, oh, gee, what I really need is another constraint on my actions. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I wonder if, I wonder if the organization, the, the Progressive International would, would get behind some of that kind of an well, approach. It seems that enthusiasm for this sort of stuff is a little stronger on the left than the right, mm-hmm. but there are plenty of people on the right who are complaining about these very issues. issues. I mean, the right spends a lot of its time complaining about the lack yeah. of the quality of speech, mm-hmm. uh, the way in which government is so distant from the voice of the people, mm-hmm. the values of the community and so on. Yeah. So, well, there will be people on both the right and the left who will see the wisdom of this. <clears throat> it is true, however, that there are quite a lot of people on the left who have their own power bases. Mm-hmm. Uh, the unions are an example of this. Mm-hmm. And I think they fail to take the long view. They t- fail to see it outside of the context where they're just trying to you know, get through the day, yeah. resist the boss or whatever. Right. I think there are much larger, there are much larger things at issue. And I'm pleased, for instance, that Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance mm-hmm. minister, quite a left-wing guy, he didn't say much about this stuff and I was badgering him to say more. He's now, you know, thinks this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe I shouldn't be so keen on that because he's so well identified with the left. But this is just, it's such common sense. Uh, but I do think that if you are left wing and you believe that we should be trying to go for more profound transformation of our societies, you're going to lose every time to Fox News. Mm-hmm. And you need to you need to realize that if you do want to build a more habitable world, it has to be built on foundations that are different to the current ones. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, just to, to clarify... And Yannis Varoufakis would be, I think, well, according to some, maybe on the border, <clears throat> on the skirting the border between these two, right? But sort of the distinction between, let's say, the left capital L and <clears throat> kind of what's often called in the U.S. political context, say, progressive Democrats. So yeah, you know, you could yeah, say like yeah. left liberals, right? Who are who are yeah, pretty much in yeah. favor of the status quo system, but they'd be on the left wing yeah. of, of status quo Excellent. supporting. And I think if you go, you know, outside of kind of left liberal channels, then you start to see some critiques of, say, woke identity politics or the, the same type of lack of esegoria that you do see yeah. by some of the populist right wingers. Yeah. And I mean, a conversation for another day, which you referenced earlier, kind of obliquely, when you were talking about how conditions are materially worse for poor people in my country, the U.S., as opposed to your country in many ways, you know, arguably that's because you still have some semblance of social democracy functioning, Mm. whereas the much more limited version of social democracy that we had under, you know, kind of FDR's, you know, New Deal Deal legacy has has really been rolled back, you know, over over the period of neoliberalization. So... 
so that that really that does change things and and you know it does it does and it places you it it makes a much more adversarial world Mm -hmm. it does yeah because then 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 for a lot of people you know i mean living in the bay bay area where housing is insanely expensive you know just you know so many people are homeless and and you know it's a pretty common phenomenon to see i see it in my own neighborhood that if if some additional low-income housing units are going to be built, you suddenly see all kinds of people who, by San Francisco's standards, would be you know lower Liberal. middle class, yeah. right? You know, yeah. or working yeah. class yeah. are like you know, holy crap! Like no way, not in my neighborhood, yeah. right? You know, yeah. keep those yeah. people out. You get a lot, a lot of <laughs> uh, right. nimbyism, yeah. even among you know people who are doing okay, but they're certainly not raking yeah. in the dough. The, the way yeah. many people there yeah. are so lots of lots of tricky things and when you do actually see some of that firsthand that material those material consequences that can be a radicalizing influence in different directions pushing people to the left pushing people to the to, to the right yeah. as well yeah. right it could be a conservatizing influence yeah anyhow but I, I do like that. You know, here's one more question that that was phrased, you know, in a kind of a, a potent way by the students who put it together. Mm. Um, let me let me throw this one at you before we wrap up. Where was it here? Yeah, here it is. Okay. So these students say, it's easy to say that in theory we should adopt the values of esegoria and parhesia, but does this view assume that there are not certain objectively harmful views that should never be given credit? Do esegoria mm. and parhesia give platforms to Nazis, racists, homophobes, etc.? How could such a social structure, if so, possibly benefit society? Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. As I said earlier, I do think that there are limits and I do think that it is fine to delimit things that most people would agree are hate speech. Mm -hmm. I also think that that changes over time Mm -hmm. and that's something to be, to have some, to think about. Mm -hmm. But I also think that what's happening now is that we are outlawing speech from a very high level. And essentially what that does is that it, it it basically puts people on notice that they mustn't trigger, to use, to use a loaded word, they mustn't trigger certain kinds of responses. Mm-hmm. And people have become better and better at exploiting that way we argue when we, when we pick up a word it immediately goes out of context and becomes an excuse to attack someone. So I don't really want to debate it in very binary terms. Mm-hmm. I do want to argue that the idea of speech policing is something which is ill-suited. The subtleties are very ill-suited to being dictated from above. Mm-hmm. The non-subtleties are not. So when I was a kid and I went to football... There was racial abuse all the time and homophobic abuse, and I'm just fine. I mean, now when you go to the football, a sign goes up and says, report antisocial behaviour on this mobile phone number, and you can text in as a person at Bay H6 who's screaming racist. Yeah, so let me th- let me think how to, how to wrap it up. 
Yeah, well, here, I was going to say, well, yeah, so thank you for addressing all those questions, um, you know, kind of genuine questions from students who weren't weren't familiar, I think, in general with sortition or with, with Isagoria or Parhesia. And so I think they'll they'll be gratified. They'll think it's pretty cool that this economist from Australia took the time and the trouble to look at the questions that they came up with and respond to them. I hope it clarifies things for those of them who choose to tune in and, and check it out. But yeah, do you have anything you want to want to say before no I'm, i hope i hope that i hope that it's been of interest to them and uh, yeah i think we're in a pretty sticky situation and the stickiness of the situation isn't so much in the material material conditions mm -hmm. which are uh, you know there are some problems with that there always are mm -hmm. but with figuring our way out of a very dense labyrinth mm -hmm. and so uh, that was uh, those very those four very simple ideas are my attempt to try to start conversations around those things, mm -hmm. which are not, don't come down to us from philosophers or, you know, there's nothing about them that I think can't be thought about by high school students and anyone else. Yeah. So I'll be interested to see if there are any further reactions. Probably not many people, many of your students will watch this, but who knows? I'll be interested what you can tell me in the fullness of time. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch about that and we should, we should have another conversation sometime soon. Sounds great. Okay, thanks a lot, Martin. Yeah, absolutely.